And I think this is something that companies really need to reflect on themselves saying, we're using this code. We need to figure out how we can say like it's a license, a corporate license, or, or some way of contributing monetarily to these libraries. Otherwise, if someone decides they want to quit and take it down, which has happened, your company is just like, oh, well, we got to fork yeah. it. We got to get the archive of it. Now we have to maintain it. As large organizations find themselves navigating their way around hybrid cloud, developers are being asked to shift their priorities as well as their mindset for this new world. For insight on new cloud architectures, deployment strategies, and the shifting culture landscape, tune into Cisco's podcast, Cloud Unfiltered. Here comes the URL. It's cs.co slash podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Stack Overflow podcast. My name is Matt. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow, and I'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts, Sierra and Cassidy. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm really, really excited to talk about the plethora of things that we have going on today. We've got Visual Studio turning 25. I'm going to be talking about some K-pop. We have some really interesting topics of the day, which personally I'm very invested in. Uh, and we also have a little thing from Playdate 2. So we're going to start off. Visual Studio is turning 25. Wow. Now, I don't think we should sing happy birthday, but <laughs> happy birthday, happy Visual Studio. Wow. Do you guys use Visual Studio? I do. I, do. I can't believe it's this old. I use Visual Studio code. Yeah. I haven't used Visual Studio in a while. Oh, wait, what's the difference? Oh, great question. Let's get into that. <laughs> uh, so, and and... Granted, this is something where there have been debates on the internet, but here is the high level, because uh, there's debates about everything, of course. Visual Studio yeah. is an IDE. It is it is a way of writing code and compiling it and being able to navigate everything. It is a full integrated development environment. Visual Studio is a full-on IDE where, where you can do all kinds of things. Visual Studio Code is a code editor, a text editor. If you add enough plugins and stuff, it can have IDE functionality, but otherwise it's just a text editor where you can write something, save it, and it works. With, with Visual Studio, you can do much more in-depth things. Like for example, you could say, ah, the, here's this variable that we imported. You could do a command and it'll say, go to definition, and you could go to the definition of this class and then navigate that and, and compile code in it and stuff. And, and Typically to write like C++ or Java or C Sharp or, or some of those much more heavy languages that actually need to be compiled, you need to use an IDE um, or, or have a separate compilation step. That is, that is my high level understanding of the debate and the difference. Okay. Okay. I think I get it. I think I get it. <laughs> Eh. It's when Visual <laughs> Studio Code came out. It was, it was around the time where Atom was really popular and Sublime Text, mm. which oh, I think yeah. a lot of people. It was Atom and Sublime. Yeah, Text. and and some people still use those. I don't think Atom as much. I th I think it's pretty much been mostly deprecated in favor of Visual Studio Code, um, because you know Microsoft buying GitHub and everything. But uh, yeah, it's it. Those editors were popular because you could just write the code, save it, and done. You didn't have to set yeah. up a whole project environment file and, and system mm. to, to write things. There were also like 
I've used IntelliJ Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code and Sublime Text, and a lot of the people were in favor of those kind of more lighter weight um, text editors, essentially, like Visual Studio Code and Sublime Text, because you they, they were quite heavy to run your system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you didn't need a lot of the functionality, especially doing like web development and stuff like that. You could more pick and choose exactly what you needed to make it a little bit more streamlined and flow, be less... Uh, resource intensive on your system and that's something that i really like but i am a big fan of visual studio and visual studio code <laughs> i think they're they're pretty great products yeah, yeah i agree they're really cool i i admit visual studio just kind of brings me back to my traditional computer science background days where i was actually having to compile my c plus plus and open gl code to make certain things run and everything and so it's not all entirely pleasant memories, but at the same time, there there are some really incredible tools that are built in when you have a project file like that, especially if you're doing something like C Sharp, where it's very native to the tool and you you can do everything from the actual code itself to drag and drop stuff to, again, going to definitions to running certain aspects and, and compile time versus runtime debugging, all kinds of stuff. You, you you mentioning the the compiling the C plus plus days. I was using Eclipse at that stage, Excellent. and one thing, <laughs> yeah, one of the things I realize now is that I need my tools to actually kind of look pretty and be something <laughs> I want to open up. And Eclipse was not that. Not it was that. a utilitarian brute of an I, of a of a IDE. It worked, but I did not enjoy opening that. Thing. Oh, you're, this is so me. If it's not cute, I'm not using it. What's the point? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to the topics of the day. These are two I'm really keen to talk about. There's an article from Simon Wilson, which basically documents support how to, how to support open source creators, uh, maintainers, everything that comes with the technology that we use day to day that is free. And one of the things they hit on there is a monetization mechanisms where we don't actually actively contribute or support these projects. They they are operating at the goodwill of the creators and, and that's it. There's no Patreon specifically for open source frameworks. There's people buy coffees and $5 contributions every now and then, but that's not a sustainable business model. And this is something that I think is a, is a problem that needs to be solved because we have all these libraries, all these fantastic libraries that are being used by enterprise level companies for profit, and they're not seeing a single cent or any kind of uh, restitution for for the work that they provide. And Simon's solution to this particular problem was to pay these maintainers and creators to come and do talks for their companies. I I like this idea, but I also think there are much better ways to go about creating a sustainable source of revenue for these frameworks. Doing a speaking engagement is great. It's a nice kind of one-off, one-off payment, but I think it would be easier from a business perspective to set up something like a monthly subscription or yeah. some kind of service where they were contributing or some kind of something else that that would help make the lives of these open source contributors who are heroes in our industry better please discuss thoughts opinions i have so many thoughts so many opinions i'll let you go cassidy let's go so first of all so many companies need to support open source and you can say oh yeah we'll have them come give a talk oh we can have them consult for us but you're still using their labor 
even if yeah. you, outside of that. And you could say, yes, we'll pay you if you come give a talk, but that's an extra set of work that they have to do, even though you're already profiting off the work that they have. So I understand that as a model, but it's still kind of frustrating to see. I used to work at a company called React Training uh, before the pandemic. Sadly, they have to they had to lay off all staff, which is why I left. Um, but the folks who ran that company, they created React Router. And React Router is the router for React and is used in millions of projects. And they have millions of downloads. And they made something like $200 a month or some, something oh, dismal off of that. And and uh. the Ryan and Michael, the, the folks who made it, they were just like, this kind of sucks like like yeah we're, we're happy to do this for the community we we are happy with the opportunities we've gotten because we've made this but there the, there's so many people using our code around the world and and they can't make a living off of that and they went on to create remix the remix framework and they started oh, wow. it with being a paid framework because they were like, you know, we know our code is good. So many people use it. Let's let's make this a paid model and maybe it'll be sustainable. But unfortunately, when you make a framework that's paid, people don't adopt it because people do want things for free. And so ultimately, they did open source it and they uh, got investment from a VC firm. And that works. That gets them paid. But it's frustrating that open source has to be funded by VCs and not by companies who are actually going to be using it or, or folks who are actually going to be using it. And I think this is something that companies really need to reflect on themselves saying, we're using this code. We need to figure out how we can say like it's a license, a corporate license, or, or some way of contributing monetarily to these libraries. Otherwise, if someone decides they want to quit and take it down, which has happened, your company is just like, oh, well, we got to fork yeah. it. We got to get the archive of it. Now we have to maintain it. When you could have just supported them financially and and have some guarantees at attached to that. It's ugh. Anyway, rant over. I'm frustrated by this whole topic. Oh, yeah. I think it's definitely a, a huge problem. I don't, I'm going to say I don't know much about it. I've only been able to really observe the pain points that other people have expressed um, on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, I think this is why, like, obviously open source is very valuable to the community. Obviously, this is the case. So many companies have an open source business model. The company I work for does. And that's like very common nowadays. But I feel like because it's so hard, I've worked at startups where the product started out as an open source project. But because it's so hard to like work full time and then maintain a like a side project, you kind of have to end up choosing between the two, right. which shouldn't really be the case. But like you said, then you end up having to like sacrifice one or the other. And then like, if you decide to maintain the open source project, you basically have to go to VC funders to like support yourself and possibly other people who work on the project right. as well. Or just hope your um, company is generous enough to let you dedicate time to it. Right. Exactly. Which is not have, always true. Yeah. And, and, it contributes to the lack of diversity in open source too. Because oh, absolutely. Let's, absolutely. let's be honest, a lot of the family and, and home work is put upon women and, and put upon folks who, who have to support their whole families. And those people right. don't have an opportunity to work on open source and have that be a thing that boosts their resume and stuff because there's no financial benefit. And and that's a very yeah. real reality and reason why open source is, has dismal numbers in terms of diversity. 
and then it like trickles down to other things as well like um i know there's like a i saw something about this recently where there's like a a survey or something like that about some some like the what's the most popular coding language or something like that and the way that they get feedback for it is by like basically analyzing popular open source projects and like there's no representation of women or people of color or black people because Mm -hmm. most of the time most of the people who can afford to like spend time on open source are not people who fit those like categories exactly so it's it's a it's a pretty huge problem um and like even even if your company is generous enough to allow you to like spend time on your open source project or they like i guess buy it from you or whatever you still lose like a level of control a lot of the times because now it's not really your thing anymore it's the company's thing um so it 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 feels like every solution to this problem is still not a 100 win for the open source maintainers even though they're doing like the noble thing of like building something that's useful for people and uh, like allowing people to use it so it's definitely a problem i'm i wish we had better solutions to it but I don't think I've seen too many that, like I said, are 100% win for maintainers. Yeah, I think you're you're really right there. There's a lot of the solutions that have been proposed so far, they've been by a case-by-case yeah. basis. Nothing, we need something that is able to scale, something that's sustainable and that, and that works in the long run. I mean, we, we had a chat with uh, Mitchell Hashimoto, yeah. uh, one of the founders of um, HashiCorp. And I, I was curious around how he moved from maintaining this open source framework outside of work hours he was saying he was getting burnt out it was really stressful it was impacting his lifestyle and relationships all this kind of stuff and you know making the move to do that full-time required monetizing it that was that was the only way he could shift from having a full-time job to doing this full-time and not everybody can do that not everyone has you know the financial backing to take the risk in order to do something like that it's it's an issue, yeah. and I hope it's one that people are working to solve at the moment. Because I know personally, I'm not going to spend ten to fifteen hours of my free time on something that's not going to be able to be sustained long term, or I'm not going to get any kind of financial restitution from that. I don't. I'm not in the position of my life to to do something yeah. like that. Yeah, and moment. I think the biggest issue is when these big enterprise companies are using this like free open source software and aren't compensating yeah. creators in any way, shape, or form. That's when it really becomes unfair like and that's you know, where the you're money making comes money from. off of this exactly yeah so like, you definitely could people shouldn't rely on the individual github sponsors like you said a five dollar coffee here and there or something the the money comes from the companies that are making money off of your work yeah and that's the thing it's that's an enterprise bothers product me. with no monetization yeah. plan yeah which is bizarre and it's like you would think morally speaking they would be like oh we don't want to just use this person's stuff we would like to like compensate them but like you know we just talked about the nfts and the big companies and how they just want money so like yeah it is a pretty sticky situation and i i wish i hope that we'll come to a solution soon right and i've seen companies where they're just like oh well we don't want to rely on open source because of that and so we'll make it in-house but the thing you make in-house will almost always be subpar it's much cheaper to give $10,000 to an open source project than to pay developers to build yeah. their own version of it that's reinventing yeah, the wheel. I agree. Okay, let's move on. We're moving on to the rec corner. This is quite an interesting little device. Is Was one of the you play two date. involved? Yeah, that was me. Who, or Cassidy, I, not involved, please. but I shared it. Okay, cool. <laughs> Cassidy, would you please take the lead on this wonderful little device? The play date. 
I think that this is the coolest thing. So there's this company called Panic. I think they are really, really cool because what they do is they just make whatever they want and it works. And so <laughs> they started by making cool Mac apps like you might know the Coda uh, code editor. Uh, that, that was another one pre sublime text and stuff. And, and they've made some testing tools and then they made stuff like untitled goose game, which was that viral game of the oh, goose. That, that was around. them. Yeah, that was them. Yeah. Oh my God. They, they've made so many cool things. And then they were just like, Hey, what if we made our own game console where it's regular buttons and stuff like a game boy, but we'll add a crank. And so you can, like spin a little crank like a fishing rod or something and they did wildly well with pre-orders and stuff and it's going to be manufactured and just uh this month they released their sdks for it and so you can develop games for the play date for free with their whole development kit and it's just this thing that i love what they do as a company because they seem to just say what if we did this and then they go for it and it's it's very, very cool. And it's a cool example of a business where they kind of just don't rely on massive growth and VC funding. They just kind of make good software that works well and is cool. And here they are making the play date and this software development kit where people can just make silly games that use a crank. That is so cool. One of the things I absolutely loved just having a look through the article before the podcast was the way that they structure the games. So basically it's they do it like a season so every week or so you get a, a game delivered to your device and that's the game you play for the week and so they, they call it a season so 24 original playdate games delivered weekly at no extra charge and that's that's kind of how it works i think that's absolutely amazing i, I haven't seen anything like that before and it's also USB-C, which yeah. you know Nice to yeah, and, and you can add whatever you want to it. And so if you end up making a game, you could just throw it on there and try it out. And it's easy. It's 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 the coolest little device. And I love how open they are with how they've been building it and, and how it's been like largely experimental and then kind of ran with it. It's it's such a cool concept. It, it looks like a, I'm not sure if I'm dating myself here, but they used to sell these Pikachu game boy colors or game boy Heck advances yeah. way, back, way in the back, day. back in the day and that's the vibe that i'm getting from it's it's a little yellow device with a little crank on the side and it's just it's i've got a wave of nostalgia for pokemon at the yeah moment. Th that's i have that's... no idea what you're talking about <laughs> siora please please siora <laughs> sorry <laughs> just pokemon's oh, still gosh. relevant come on oh but yeah it's it, it's exactly like that vibe and i think that's what's fun about it so many people are just like oh this kind of reminds me of my old consoles that i had what 20 years ago and but it's still got the modern twists to it and and benefits and and it's it's just a really fun little device so if you want to check that out that's the url for that is play.date we'll have it linked in the show description as well is anyone going to be going to be checking out the API? Cassidy, are you going to make a game with the uh, Playdate API? I genuinely want to. <laughs> I, I did not get in on the pre-order fast enough. And I was like, I'm just yeah. going to wait for them to come out because the, those sold out immediately. Um, but I would love to. I think it'd be so fun. They look really cool. Anyway, let's, let's move on to something near and dear yeah. to one of our one of our hosts' hearts. Siora, do you want to take the lead on this one? Absolutely. So this is like a combination of two things that I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about. Recently, K-pop record labels um, have started to kind of tease that they're getting involved in NFTs. 
Um, and it's been really interesting to kind of it like was see it happen. NFTs. Sorry. Yes. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness. So it, it's been interesting to see it ha- like roll out because since I've been a fan of K-pop, little by little, some first it was like some K-pop artists were kind of like, yeah, I love NFTs. And then now it's like the labels themselves, which I haven't really seen in like the American music industry. The labels, the, the like record labels themselves are starting to like partner with fintech companies. And the article that I have here from The Atlantic is interesting because it discusses the response of fans. So um, it's generally, I would say that most K-pop fans are on the younger side of things like millennials to Gen Z is like usually the target audience. And so uh, like, it's not a surprising thing that a lot of them are like activists and into and concerned about the environmental impact of NFTs. And the interesting thing about the article that was that it was mentioning that a lot of these um, record labels have decided to like um, do their NFTs on platforms is what they call it, that are more environmentally friendly. One of them being Solana. They mentioned a couple other ones that are not nearly as environmentally destructive as Ethereum or like other ones. Um, But despite that uh, it's, interesting to see how the response has still been very negative because initially right the information that a lot of k-pop fans were told was that they're bad for the environment they use up tons of energy like it's horrible it's horrible and i don't know if nfts will ever be able to recover from that like stigma especially in the k-pop community so it's been really interesting plus i'm like if these labels decide to go ahead with the nft thing how are they going to like go about it? And I wonder if other like music industries in other countries are going to imitate them as well, which is, it's just interesting to me. It's interesting to see these two things like cross over in a really kind of cool way. Is it cool? I don't know if it's cool, but if you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to throw them my way. Cause I'm like an expert in both of these things basically at this point. <laughs> I, I, I will add. Yeah. So, I, I saw the same thing with, I, I guess your your K-pop is my gaming. I guess yeah, <laughs> I, I'm really I, I I love that kind of side of things. Yeah, and there were a couple of companies that were starting to push NFTs and and those kind of things within games, and the the feedback was very much the same. Nobody was on board. Everyone was angry. A couple of companies backpedaled, whereas others kind of said, "No, we're going to try and do this the environmentally friendly way." So it's been a really interesting just looking at how certain companies have responded to that feedback. And I personally, I have no idea where this is going to go. I'm not too involved in the NFT realm. What I don't really get is that a lot of the things that they're doing with it, it feels like they're not actually solving any problems. They're just like, oh, maybe this will be another avenue for making money, which is fine. Businesses need to make money and stuff, but it, it almost just kind of grinds my gears a little bit i'm just like there's so many other things that you could do you you make enough money do something else oh k-pop labels are like so money hungry it's ridiculous (laughs) like they and they make money like they they take advantage of fans so much me included as you can see (laughs) as you can see (laughs) but like this is an evidence for me that like nfts were never about art if they were, then we wouldn't see, be seeing this happening. I think the primary right. use of NFTs has always been like making money and being able to like sell whatever you bought for more money to somebody else. Um, and we're kind of seeing that like 
infiltrate other realms. So yeah, it's right. just interesting. Like, yeah, exactly. I don't see artists being just like, this is it. And granted, I've seen some yeah. where they're just like, I have made a living because of NFTs. Yay. So more power to them. Great. But the people who are majorly pushing them are, yeah, the labels, the VCs, the people who will be making the most money. Yeah. The other thing I'll add to that as well is that traditionally with, with NFTs, as far as I understand, a lot of people were confused by the value that they provided. And now with with K-pop specifically, if they're starting to attach real world benefits to NFTs, I think that will get, it'll help increase the adoption for people who oh, maybe yeah. don't understand or, or don't care because they'll be like, oh, so I just need to buy this thing and then I get front row tickets to a thing or I get access to this club or venue or community or whatever else that might be. And that's, I'm not sure how I feel about that because I haven't done enough research with NFTs to properly understand the potential climate impact or understand kind of the different blockchains and Solana and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know how to feel about it at the moment, but I do think when they start attaching tangible benefit to owning an NFT in the real world, that's where adoption might kind of pick up and people might start being more open to buying things once they're like, oh, I can actually do something that's with it. That's where like yeah. though. This problem has been solved. You can buy a ticket and get a front row seat at a conference or a yeah. concert, conference, whatever. You you don't you don't need an NFT to do that. Like, but it's in a way to make more money. Like, yeah. that's really yeah. essentially what's exactly. happening. I probably and like, sound like an old man shouting at a cloud, but no, like, you're you're right though. You're like absolutely yeah, correct. Right. And like I've said this before, and it's so true. Like these big companies not just exclusive to k-pop are really out to make money and they don't really care if they're solving a problem as long as they can like trick you into thinking they are like they're okay with that right um so it's just like i don't know i don't i'm not a huge fan of it i'm not a huge fan of like any company taking advantage of like their audience or whatever but that's essentially what's happening here and it's just funny to me because in order for NFTs to like have value to their audience, they have to like attach it to something else, which means that do the NFTs actually have mm. value? I don't know. Sure, good point. Right. And then it's just yeah. the, the whole thing with NFTs is digital ownership. But if you're making the digital ownership mean something physical, once again, it's been solved. It, it just yeah. Ugh. I'm I'm sure yeah. we'll get plenty of people messaging us saying like you just don't get it. Maybe <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but yeah. that's just it I, I don't get it i don't hmm. yeah that's going to be one of my goals for the next couple of weeks is to actually because i i'm involved in the motion design community and a lot of them are kind of hopping on the nft bandwagon and, and producing stuff so i want to i want to come back with some opinions some things <laughs> and and be able to contribute in a better way i was just going to say we have tons of episodes where we, we've discussed nfts and crypto too so you can like <laughs> re-listen to those oh, check well. out the archive <laughs> i will prob I probably should <laughs> it's my job after all and with that that is a wrap for the podcast we've got a lifeboat to hand out a lifeboat for those of you who don't know is an answer score of 20 or more to a question score of negative three or less that goes on to receive a score of three or more and this badge can be awarded multiple times and the lifeboat that we're giving out today is to Mohammed Yusuf, who answered the question, how can I convert a Python dictionary to an HTML table? Didn't realize that was a that was a need, but yeah, yeah can you convert uh, dictionaries to Python tables? And it, it it's great. It spits out the actual raw, it converts the dictionary into a raw HTML table with all the appropriately 
gathered cells and everything else there. It's pretty great. I that feels like an interview question. <laughs> like we're we're kind of like parsing it and stuff. I'm just like I could do that. Somebody for yeah, sure. You, you could loop through the cells and yeah. they were definitely sitting kind of on a timed 60 minute tech test. And they would they answer the question and take like, flow. Please, please. <laughs> and little did they know, two two years later, <laughs> with a score of negative three, some <laughs> hero comes in. Anyway, that's it. That's a wrap for us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been Matt Kiananda, I'm a tech advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online in all the places at Matt Kanda, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. I'm Sierra Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me mainly on Twitter. My username there is C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm the head of developer experience and education at Remote. Cool. Thank you very much, everyone. And see you next time. Bye.